Welcome to Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. Our guest today is Michael Uslin. He's best known as the originator and producer of the wildly successful Batman movies. He's worked on a number of other TV and movie projects, including The Spirit, National Treasure, and a personal favorite of mine, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? He wrote for DC Comics, and he was an avid comic book collector with some twenty-five to 30,000 books in his possession as a young boy. Michael Uslin, thanks so much for coming in. It is just wonderful to be here, back home again in Indiana. Back in Bloomington. You're here for your niece's graduation, you said. Yeah, she was graduating law school this weekend, and it was great. I had my three degrees here, so I had the opportunity already myself to graduate from law school. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you you got a number of degrees and sort of keeping it in the family, right? Absolutely. It was uh, It was just a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Well, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, you're here to speak a little bit about Jewish immigrants and their effect on comic books. You're, you're giving a talk on that. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, I had the great pleasure of setting up an exhibit of comic art at the Montclair Art Museum in New Jersey, which is a fantastic uh, museum. It was even bigger than the one we had set up here at the Lilly Library a few years ago at the time I first began to donate my comic book collection to the Lilly Library here. And in conjunction with that, we received funding from a foundation to do a documentary. My position was that the voices of the people who created the comic book, the voices of the people who created most of the superheroes of what's called the golden age of comics from the 1930s and 40s and the silver age of comics in the 1960s into the 70s, they are a breed that unfortunately is departing fast. And if we didn't capture them on film, they're all in their 80s and 90s now, that entire history was going to disappear in front of our eyes. So we went about and were able to interview about two dozen of the creators of these great comic books and not only preserve the history, but preserve the perspective of what they were doing at the time. Did they know what they were doing was creating a new American art form, a modern-day mythology, a contemporary American folklore? Did they know it had value? Did they think it would last? The answers were amazing. But for me, it opened my eyes clearly that the comic book and the superhero largely are creations of a Jewish immigrant and first-generation American Jewish experience and thus begat Superman and Batman and Green Lantern and the Fantastic Four and the Marvel superheroes that followed. Um, very, very interesting stuff. And you can compare a lot of the stories directly from the stories of Moses and the Gollum. Uh, the Gollum is really today's Hulk, uh, just fancied up a bit. Tell me the story of Superman and how that relates to the story of Moses, because that becomes important in how you got the class at IU. About oh, comic books. You're absolutely right about that. Um, and maybe I need to back up and explain what this class was because mm -hmm. IU really gave me the opportunity to uh, go forth in life with my passion and turn it into my work. Because as a blue collar kid from Jersey who suddenly found myself in Bloomington, Indiana, sitting in chairs in uh, lots of wonderful classes with no clue how to make my dreams come true, writing Batman comics, making a dark and serious Batman movie. But in the early 70s when I was here as an undergrad, it was a time of great experimentation in college campuses, which uh, we won't go into further. <laughs> and the College of Arts and Sciences designed an experimental curriculum program, the idea being that if you had an idea for a course that had never been taught anywhere and could get the backing of a department on campus behind you, you had the right to appear before a panel of deans and professors and pitch the course. If they agreed it was worthy, they would let you teach it for credit on campus. So I designed what would be the world's first college course on comic books and had to then appear before the panel as soon as I was able to get the support of Dr. Henry Glassy of the Folklore Department here, who said, Michael, you're right. These are our modern-day mythologies. Um, the ancient gods of Greece, Rome, and Egypt do exist, except today they wear spandex and capes. <laughs> so with my hair down to my shoulders and my love beads strapped on my neck, uh, I entered into uh, this very, very dark room, as I recall it. And sitting at this huge conference table was a dean and professors and some students. And I went into my first pitch of my life, of my career. 
and I was stopped about two minutes in. And the dean said, uh, wait a minute. I, I don't buy this. I, I reject your theory. Comic books is mythology and folklore. He said, give me a break. I read comic books when I was a kid. I read every issue of Superman I could get my hands on. But all they really are is cheap entertainment for children. Nothing more, nothing less. And I thought for a second. I said, could I ask you two questions? He said, ask me anything you'd like. I said, are you familiar with the story of Moses? And he looked at me strangely and said, yeah, so? I said, could you very briefly summarize the story of Moses for me? And he stared at me as if I was crazy, folded his arms, and then said, I don't know what game you're playing here, but I'll, I'll play this with you. He said the Hebrew people were being persecuted and their firstborn were being slain. And a Hebrew couple placed their infant son in a little wicker basket, sent him down the river Nile, where he's discovered by an Egyptian family who raised him as their own son. When he grew up and learned of his true heritage, he became a great hero to his people by, I said, stop, that's great, thank you so much. Um, you mentioned also that you read Superman comics. Do you recall the origin of Superman? He said, sure. Planet Krypton was about to blow up. Scientist and his wife placed their infant son in a little rocket ship and sent him to Earth. There he's discovered by the Kents, who raise him as their own son. When he grows up, and then he stopped, stared at me for an eternity, and said, your course is accredited. And that's how I began teaching the college course here on comic books, which had never been done before, which came to the attention of DC and Marvel Comics in New York. And DC offered me a job, and I started writing The Shadow for them. And then that led to an opportunity for me to write Batman comics. And one step after another, that all started right here. Right here at IU. Yeah. In addition to teaching that course, you also were an immediate self-promoter. There's the story of you calling an Indianapolis station, a newspaper, and pretending to be irate about this class being offered at IU. So right from the get-go, you're a self-promoter. Well, I like to call it self-marketer. Sounds so much nicer. That is, that's nicer. Um, it, it all stems from my mom. My mom had always told me, uh, Michael, you could have the greatest creative ideas in the world, but if you don't market them, if you don't market yourself, nobody will ever see your wares. And I was trying to figure, well, what can I do now that I've made this great step with this course? How can I get my foot further in this door? What can I make of this? And that's when I actually wound up calling United Press International in Indianapolis, which at that time was as big as Associated Press, big news syndicate. And uh, I did exactly what you said, and uh, they came in to investigate, and it led to an interview, which led to an article that was a third of a page long with photos that was picked up by virtually every newspaper in North America. And as a result, I never taught a comic book class, not one class that wasn't filled with television cameras and reporters. What did you learn from teaching that class about yourself, about comics? The first thing I learned was that it is possible to take what you love in life, what you're passionate about in life, and make it into your work. That was critical. I mean, that really was critical for my whole outlook going forward. And it's something that I was inspired to do by my dad. My dad was a mason. And as a stonemason working six days a week from the time he was 16 years old, no matter what the weather was outside, Pop got up before dawn every single day, big smile on his face, couldn't wait to get to work. And he was such an old world craftsman. He was such an artist, what he built with bricks and stone and marble, fireplaces, homes. You grow up in a house like that, and you want that for yourself. Uh, as I say, you want to wake up on a rainy Monday morning and to be able to say, boy, I can't wait to get to work. That's a blessing. And not a lot of people have that. Yeah, absolutely. It, you went from teaching to your dream job at DC Comics, where you ended up writing for DC Comics. As a collector of comic books, that really, that seems like the perfect job? Did you just love it? It was, for me, the ultimate dream come true at that moment, working for DC in New York City, surrounded by people who were really my idols. To stress the point, I like to mention that when Stan Lee, the co-creator of the Pantheon of Marvel Superheroes, saw me on TV and read about me in the newspapers with the college course, and he called me here in Bloomington, and in that first phone call where I picked it up and it was Stan Lee's voice, I referred to it half-jokingly as my burning bush moment. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this guy was my god growing up when I was a kid, my comic book god. And uh, to be in an industry where I've had the opportunity to develop a friendship with Stan, he has been a mentor, 
Um, we have worked together creatively. It just doesn't get any better than that for a typical comic book geek. Yeah, what did you do at DC Comics? Well, the first thing I did when I got there was they gave me a stack of fan mail from little kids oh, no. to answer who sent in letters to Batman and Superman. <laughs> My favorite in thinking back on it was, Dear Superman, it was written in crayon. Half the words were had letters backwards. It was, Dear Superman, I love you and your comic books. I hope Jimmy Olsen walks off a cliff and dies. <laughs> love, Jerry. <laughs> And I had to write back, and I did actually write back um, some little tidbit like, hey, you know, I feel the same way. Love Superman. Um, but every time I watch Seinfeld and I see all of his Superman stuff around his apartment on his refrigerator, I can't help but wonder if maybe that was Jerry. <laughs> Very nice. Um, from there, they had me clean out the closet, which was the corporate closet that hadn't been touched in decades. And uh, I went through – and in doing that, I learned the entire detailed history of DC Comics – Everything from the very first day that company was in business was in that, and I arranged it. And it was uh, a, a living learning center for me that summer. I'd spend my lunch hours in the library reading every DC comic book ever made since the 1930s. So it was paradise. And there I am talking to the editors, the writers, and the artists I grew up with. And probably just as importantly, they came to know me and to understand that I was somebody who – appreciated this. I respected them. I respected the works. And they came to trust me, which ultimately is one of the reasons I got the rights to Batman to make into a movie, because I had developed a relationship there with a level of trust. And they knew how much I loved this material and these characters. Even though at DC Comics, you, you know, you, as you were saying, you developed this love of Batman, and you realized that creating Batman movies was a goal of yours. They were telling you no, though. You said you had this this goal of making a dark Batman movie, but they said, you know, that it's just not possible. That Batman series is dead. People know it as the 1960s TV show. It's campy. Your dream is impossible. They were telling you no. Well, it's true. Uh, when I finally did buy the rights to Batman with my partner, Ben Melnicker, and Ben is a legend in the business. He ran MGM for 30 years. All divisions reported to him, and he put together some movies like Ben-Hur, Dr. Zhivago, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Gigi and their musicals of the 50s and 60s. Really a legend. Great mentor, second father, and a wonderful partner. And it took us six months to negotiate that deal at DC. When we finally got the rights, I thought it was the beginning of my journey. I thought everyone in Hollywood would line up and understand what I was trying to do with a dark and serious Batman. And they would see the potential for sequels and animation and toys and games and um, shockingly to me, I was not only turned down by every studio in Hollywood, I was told I was crazy and I was told it was the worst idea they ever heard. Doors slammed in my face repeatedly. There are several anecdotes I tell along the way, but my favorite rejection really came from Columbia Pictures where the head of production there said to me, Michael, Michael, Batman will never be successful as a movie because our movie, Annie, didn't do well. What? Exactly my reaction. I said, are you talking about the little red-headed girl who <laughs> sings Tomorrow? He said, yeah. I go, well, what does that have to do with Batman? I said, oh, come on, Michael. They're both out of the funny pages. And that was my rejection at Columbia. But that was the mentality that I faced at the time. The industry was being run by studio execs, agents, even the talent who, to a large extent, grew up in what I call the um, Frederick Wortham era of comics. Frederick Wortham was a psychiatrist in the 1950s, wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent, claiming that comic books were responsible for the post-World War II rise in juvenile delinquency in America. He had interviewed 100 juvenile delinquents at his clinic in Brooklyn. They all said they had read a comic book, and therefore, Dr. Wortham concluded, comic books caused juvenile delinquency. Um, in that book, he also, by the way, mentioned that comic books caused asthma because children were staying indoors to read them instead of playing in the fresh air. But in the 1950s, this was bought up by many a uh, garden club and PTA and became a major, major, major problem. So a lot of that generation had the feeling that comic books were, like the dean thought, cheap and lurid entertainment for children. And they were dismissive. They were disrespectful of it, saw no potential for it, and in some cases said Superman was the only exception, the only one with enough of a cachet 
you could ever make into you know TV or a movie. And that was the exception to the rule, and everything else was pretty much worthless. Little did they know. Little did they know, but we seem to have educated them over the years. One of the things I like to say, I, I've been giving a lot of keynote addresses as guest of honor at comic book conventions. And recently I've spoken in the last year at New York uh, City, uh, San Diego, Chicago. And I remind all the fanboys out there that I was a comic book geek like they all were. And when I was growing up, if a person saw you post 12 years old reading a comic book, you got real ugly stares. When the girls found out I was 15 years old and still reading comic books, I became what I like to refer to as date challenged. <laughs> the, the laughter, the snickers, the finger pointing. And guess what? Today we sit here, just as Iron Man 2 is open to about $133 million weekend, the comic books are the biggest blockbuster movies that cross not only demographics but borders and cultures worldwide. They're hit TV shows. They're hit animation. They're hit video games. They are not only impacting the box office. They're impacting the culture, affecting fashion. So to all my fellow comic book geeks around the world, I can only say we win. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> well, this is a perfect time to stop, play a little bit of music. You said that uh, comic books were blamed for juvenile delinquency. Well, our first musical selection, I suppose you could sort of say that has it's been blamed for juvenile delinquency as well. This is by Metallica. This is Enter Sandman. Why are we playing this as we're talking to you? I am also an ardent Yankee fan. Uh -huh. And this is the entrance music for Mariano Rivera every time he walks into Yankee Stadium to save a game. And uh, I have happily, as uh, him being one of my real-life superheroes, adopted it for myself. Music by the heavy metal band Metallica, Enter Sandman, our guest on Profiles today. Michael Uslin, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Let's talk a little bit about Batman, because that's really, that's really the claim to fame here. You work so hard to get this to the movie screen to make your vision of Batman. What is it about this character and the storyline of Batman that had you so, so intrigued your entire life? There's two parts to that answer. There's the part that enthralled the eight-year-old boy, and then there's the part that makes this character work and be accessible to different cultures around the world. The first part is very simple. I loved Batman much more than Superman or Spider-Man or the Hulk because Batman had no superpowers. I contend that Batman's greatest superpower is his humanity. And when I was eight, I truly believed in my heart of hearts that if I studied hard and worked out real hard and if my dad bought me a cool car, I could be this guy. And it was that sense of identification that I think was so strong. And the Batman that I read in that era of the 1950s and 60s, he won more battles using his brain than using his fists. The technology was always there, but he really was a detective. He really was a modern-day Sherlock Holmes. And I found that to be 
something far more attractive to me at age eight than beating somebody to a pulp and winning at the end of the day. In a larger sense, we have to take a look at Batman's origin story. It is so primal. It is a story that is so emotional in its basic uh, layout that it can impact people around the world and they are all affected by it and can all relate to it. The story of a young boy who watches his parents being murdered before his own eyes in a city street. A young boy who at that moment, in the belief that one person can make a difference, sacrifices his childhood and makes a commitment that whatever it takes, even if he has to march through hell for the rest of his life, he is going to get the guy who did this. He is going to get all the bad guys. And that is so powerful. And I think that's the essence of the character. If you want to take it one step beyond, Batman had the greatest supervillains in comic book history. And you can only define the success of a superhero and the longevity of a superhero by the quality of his supervillains. The Joker is the greatest supervillain ever in the history of comics. And when you look at the two of them, you have to wonder at some time if things had been a little bit different. If Batman had been, or I should say Bruce Wayne, had been obsessed beyond the point of possibly becoming psychotic, if he couldn't have fallen off that fine line into the world of the Joker instead. When you look at the two of them battle each other in that kind of I made you, you made me, that uh, what Tim Burton liked to uh, portray almost apparatically, you see a force of good dressed like a evil monster. And you see an evil monster in the guise of the carnival, just like in Edgar Allan Poe's Cask of Amontillado. And I think that is very, very interesting. Time after time after time, the psychological implications of it, the motivational factors, this concept that, you know, one pretty much couldn't exist without the other. It was fascinating to uh, read about. And those artists, writers, and editors, 70 years later, have everyone coming back every Wednesday to read the newest adventures. And, and that's an amazing accomplishment. You can't do that with too many characters. Something that strikes me about Batman, too, is that he's not, he's not all good. He's not uh, the superhero that works with the police every single time. He sort of has his own agenda and sometimes toes the line of good and bad. And that's something that really came out in the last Batman movie, I remember. Yeah, thematically, it gets into interesting ground. He's not a super boy scout like Superman is. Um, you know, Superman has descended from the heavens and is pointing the way to the light for all of us, taking time out to help the old lady cross the street and help the cat out of the tree. I don't think Batman's going to help any cats out of any trees. He has no patience for bureaucracy and red tape. He is going to operate under his own set of rules, under his own code, in the belief that it's right. Um, he is judge and he is jury. He does not act as executioner. The character who most inspired the creation of Batman is the Shadow, as co-creator Bill Finger admitted. And the Shadow was a dark, gritty, much more violent figure in pulp literature and uh, did often act as judge, jury, and executioner. And Batman, there's a slight bit of difference. And I think that bit of difference is, uh, is intriguing and appealing. Before we get away from Batman, I'm stuck on this. You spoke a little bit about the Joker. So Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker in these recent movies, incredibly powerful, really moving. Jack Nicholson also was the Joker. And then we have a Joker from way back in the 60s on the TV series. So that character has seen ups and downs and has evolved on so many different places. Talk about the Joker in more specifics. Well, the Joker, as he's been portrayed in the media, when I was in seventh or eighth grade and the Batman TV show came on the air, I like to describe myself as having been simultaneously thrilled and horrified by what I was seeing. One of the things that thrilled me, of course, was, hey, Batman was on TV. It was in color. Somebody was spending a lot of money on the show. The car was cool. But some of the things that horrified me were the high camp elements that made the world laugh at Batman, which 
I found very distressing. And one of those elements was the fact that Cesar Romero just you know, wouldn't shave his mustache off. So they powdered it and he became a joker with uh, the powdered mustache. Now, yeah, he was portraying the joker the way he was in those comic books of the late 50s and early 60s. The dialogue he was reading, you know, was right out of those comic books. But at that moment in time, uh, with the wink of the eye to the audience, it became the ultimate definition of high camp. One of the most intriguing interpretations of the Joker ever has come on the Batman animated series. Mark Hamill has done the voice of the Joker. And I think his verbal, his audio portrayal of the Joker, what he brings to that character, is utterly amazing. And wrapped up in the brilliant work of people like Paul Dini and Bruce Timm, Eric Radomski, uh, they have just done incredible character work with the Joker in the animation. And that brings us to Jack Nicholson and Heath Ledger. In 1989, when the first Bat- our first Batman movie came out, what Tim Burton in his genius presented with Jack Nicholson was the ultimate comic book version of the Joker. It was the clown prince of crime. It was the comic book interpretation as it had been from day one of good versus evil, black versus white. Well, years later, another genius comes along in the name of Christopher Nolan. And to me, he sees this as being something very real, the need to convince the audience. If you're doing a dark and serious superhero movie today, they must suspend their disbelief and believe this can be real. And the only way he could do that would be to make you believe in Bruce Wayne, that he is somebody who could put on a mask and a cape like this and do this, and that you would understand why, psychologically, he might be driven to do it. And the other is the Joker. Now, the Joker that Chris Nolan and Heath Ledger gave us in what I agree is the performance of a lifetime is a terrorist, a homicidal maniac who places no value on human life, not man, woman, child, or his own, who is part of the gray world in which we live in, which I don't think any longer could particularly be defined as good versus evil, more order versus chaos, with the Joker being an agent of chaos. And for Chris Nolan and Heath Ledger to convince audiences around the world that this Joker could exist in this world in which we live, that was an amazing, amazing accomplishment. And uh, a portrayal. I, I think anyone who saw it will never forget it. Pretty amazing. Absolutely. Let's back up. Before you got uh, wildly successful with all these Batman movies, you went back to IU. You left DC Comics, came to IU to get a law degree with the idea of going into film. Why leave your dream job to go into film, to get a law degree? When I started writing Batman comics, I had an epiphany. And that epiphany actually took place at – I was sitting in my apartment at Fountain Park Apartments on East 10th Street. And I said, oh, my God, this dream I had since I was eight years old of writing Batman comics has come to pass. I don't have a new dream. I need a new dream. I got to come up with something. And it took me 10 minutes. And in that 10 minutes, reflecting back on my feelings when that Batman TV show came on the air, I said, okay – What I want to do is bring to the world on the silver screen that dark, serious Batman that the general population of the world does not know. And if I had to define the mission specifically, it would be that one day I would erase from the collective consciousness of the world culture those three little words, pow, zap, and wham. (laughs) And then the question becomes, how do you do that? All right, now I've gotten to myself uh, I've gotten myself to a point where I'm working at DC Comics, I'm writing Batman comics, um, but I knew I needed to move on and to get my foot in the door in the movie business in order to move to the, where I wanted to go with my next dream. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I sent out 372 resumes um, when I finished college looking for that great creative job in the movie industry. And I got two job offers, Um, one to work for a big agency in New York City, talent agency, uh, be part of their five-year agent training program starting the first two years in the mailroom for $95 a week. I was just about to get married and $95 a week in New York didn't seem to hack it for me. 
a producer in L.A. who worked for Universal, did all their big disaster movies, said, I love your resume, love the fact you write comic books, very creative, love your creative writing awards. Move to L.A. and I'll make you my production assistant. You'll go for coffee and you'll do a lot of Xeroxing and I'll start you at $95 a week. Plan B. (laughs) (laughs) Always have a plan B. I knew that just was not going to work for me. And I decided then if I went to law school and took every course I could find having anything to do with entertainment or communications, if I could then get a job in the legal business financial side of the movie world and learn how you finance and produce movies and network like crazy and meet the power brokers, then maybe that's the way I can get my foot in the door. Then when no one's looking, sneak in a back window over to the creative side. That was plan B, the miraculous thing. Plan B worked. The thing that amazes me, I think, the most about reading about your accomplishments is just how often you've had to fight and just how many times people have not given you things. The class at IU, you had to fight for that. You had to to fight to get into Hollywood. You didn't have any connections. You had to fight to get these Batman movies made. What is it about you as a human? What are you made of that is... It's, you have such perseverance to make your dreams come true. This is the greatest question I've ever been asked in an interview, first of all. Um, congratulations. You've gotten to the heart of the matter. And, and now how to answer that in my best way possible, I would say this. I have achieved everything I set out to do but have only done so in the longest, hardest possible way. <laughs> It's like this bizarre karma that accompanies me. But again, I go back to my folks. My mom said, once you make a commitment, you stick to it and you see it through and that you you have to believe in yourself and you have to believe in your work. And that's, I think, ultimately what it comes down to. Uh, In extrapolating from that, you need a very high threshold for frustration. So when people come out and say horrible things and tell you how bad you are and how lousy your ideas are, you need to find a way to make that into your negative reinforcement. I'll show them. I'll prove it to them. And when you have supportive people like I did in the form of my parents, my wife, my kids, my, uh, a number of my teachers, then that helps propel you along the way in a positive sense. So all of that's important. But my whole life has been a series of doors slamming in my face. What I was taught at IU is at this institution, you never have to take no for an answer. There is always someone else you can talk to, some other department you can go to. You can keep going until you can get somebody who will listen to you if you have the passion. And pay attention and accommodate the needs of one individual student. That's what I found here and I felt And I had a belief that I could find that elsewhere in life as well. So every time the door slammed in my face, I realized I had two choices. I could go home and cry about it or I could pick myself up, dust myself off and go back and knock again. If I had to define my life, if I had to define the success of the Batman series of movies as a dark and serious set of movies, it would be that it was built on my bloody knuckles. And that's really been the course of my life. Let's talk about uh, the dreams then that you've had. You had a dream to work at DC Comics, check. A dream to put Batman on the big screen, check. What's next? Do you have a new dream? I do. And it's, it's interesting. I was asked this question right after The Dark Knight opened and I was speaking at Georgetown University. And a young lady said, asked me that question. And I said, well, it's funny. I hadn't thought about it before. But at this point, all my dreams focus on my family, on my kids. I find now a year later, that's not 100% true, that right now I am much more focusing on my writing and on my speaking to students. I find that by going out and telling my story to as many students as possible, students who now, because of the Batman thing and the Dark Knight, are willing to come out to hear what I have to say, to tell them my story, to let them know how wonderful it is when you can take whatever you're passionate about in life and make it into your work, and that there are ways 
from a guy who just sat in those same chairs who, as you said, didn't come from money, had no connections, didn't have any relatives in the business, that you can make your dreams come true. So I love imparting that message and trying to inspire kids to do that. And um, that gives me intense pleasure and that's part of my dream for I think the rest of my life. Uh, the other is getting back to my writing. I started out as a writer. I only became a producer because I found out that writers in Hollywood often are people who give their babies up for adoption and wait for the telephone to ring, and I couldn't do either one of those. I wanted to exert some degree of control. Now I am returning to my writing. I have just finished writing my autobiography, which has been an amazing cathartic experience for me, probably the equivalent of 10 years of therapy, <laughs> and I enjoyed every second of the 18 hours a day, seven days a week, three months it took me to write the book. I'm very, very excited about it. I'm now back to writing graphic novels, comic books, screenplays. Uh, there's a second book I'm going to be uh, working on shortly. And I find intense happiness from this and great satisfaction. So just going back to what I started out to do now, writing, is kind of uh, slowly becoming another dream for me. And, uh, and that's quite wonderful. And maybe if you come back in, say, two or three years, maybe the dream will have changed even further. It just may. Isn't that something that at this age you're still able to have new dreams? And I think that's a wonderful uh, uh, revelation about myself. Let's pause now and listen to another piece of music. This one going to be very different from our first. This is going to be Flight of the Bumblebee. Why? Why, oh, why are we playing Flight of the Bumblebee? For two reasons. Number one, it's the theme song of the Green Hornet, one of the coolest theme songs ever made. Um, going back to the radio show and then the way Al Hurt did it on the TV series in the 1960s, but also because my favorite group today is Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and their interpretation of Flight of the Bumblebee is pretty amazing to not only listen to, but if you have the opportunity to see them, to watch the light show that takes place during the course of this. Flight of the Bumblebee, performed there by the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Michael Uslan is our guest today. Let's go way back to your days as a comic book collector. 25,000 to 30,000 books now that you donated to the Lilly Library on the campus of Indiana University. Where do you suppose you'd be if your parents threw those away, like so many parents did? My entire life would have been different. No question about it. The greatest deal I ever made in life was with my mom. The reason comic books as well as baseball cards are so valuable today are all about moms. <laughs> the second anyone went into the service, went away to college, got married, whoosh, out they went. Starting in World War II, going through the 50s into the early 60s, there were often paper drives. This was in the days way before recycling started. And comic books were the first things moms dumped from the house into the paper drives. So um, it was a rarity. Most of my friends' parents, uh, moms, um, would not let them keep comic books in the house. My friend Bobby Klein's mom, in a rage one day, shoveled them all into the fireplace. Oh, no. And I can remember standing there watching, like, Fantastic Four number one, Spider-Man number one, Hulk number one, all going up into flames. Uh, I have not recovered from that moment as yet. Um, and poor Bobby, I don't think he ever will. So my mom said this to me. She said, Michael, if you... Promise me you're going to read other things, books, magazines, and newspapers. And if you keep them neat, then you can keep them. And that was the deal of the century. Uh, when we moved to our house in sixth grade, my dad never once got a car in the garage. Instead, he built floor-to-ceiling shelves around three walls of the garage so I could fill them with my comic books. Quickly ran out of space, filled up the floors to about uh, oh, waist high, 
And by the time I left for Indiana at the end of high school, I had 30,000 comic books dating back to 1936. Um, The miracle there is I met my wife first day of my freshman year of college. Nancy was not even unpacked when we met for the first time. And at the end of our senior year, we decided we would get married when school was out. I was then going to go on to law school. She was going on to nursing school. We had no money. We had no income. We were both going into school. So I did the unthinkable, and I sold 20,000 comic books from my collection at that moment in time. With that money, I bought her her engagement ring, our wedding rings. I took her on a -a two-and-a-half-week honeymoon to Europe, and I paid all three years room, board, and tuition of law school. And in retrospect, I can only say, thank God I didn't invest in real estate. (laughs) So how long have you been married? Uh, We're coming up to 37 years. Wow. Which I think is a Hollywood record. (laughs) I looked online, actually, and on eBay, Superman 1, now going for $45,000. That's in lousy condition. (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah. There was an auction. There there were three auctions in the past uh, less than two months. And the first appearance of Superman, uh, which is Action Comics number one, sold for a million dollars. And then the first appearance of Batman sold for a million one. And less than a week later, another copy of the first appearance of Superman sold for a million and a half. That's amazing. Ten-cent comic book. So before you donated all these books to IU, did you keep any for yourself? I kept about 10,000 of my favorites. My son, if he was here, I think he would physically strangle me if I gave up these 10,000. But it includes every first issue of every Marvel comic I saved and some of my real favorite stuff and uh, some stuff I'm still using like with Batman and some of the other projects we're working on that I need for reference. Yes. What are some of the gems of your collection, either at the Lilly Library or your personal collection now? Well, over the years, I've had some really amazing uh, pieces in my collection. Um, Right now, I'm focusing on original artwork. Um, which I have now loaned to uh, galleries and museums and that have been on display in different places. I've had the chance. I've spoken twice at the Smithsonian Institution on comics and was advisor to the uh, New York Metropolitan Museum of Art when they had their big comic exhibit, which had my comic books from my collection on the walls of the Met. That was astounding. That was just astounding to me. So I love all that. But over the years, let's see, Superman number two, Batman number one, the first meeting of the Justice Society of America, which was the first team of superheroes. Uh, I had the first appearance of Wonder Woman. As I said, every first issue of all the Marvel comics. Um, I had all the original issues of Mad when it was a comic book before it became a magazine. That was always the prize of my collection. Uh, first Captain Marvel, first issue uh, introducing Plastic Man, Archie number two. Loved Archie comics and recently had the opportunity to write a graphic novel of Archie that created a firestorm in the media on a worldwide basis when I went ahead and got Archie married. That's right. How (laughs) did you get that gig? Well, I have this bucket list. And as my beard has started to come in whiter and whiter, I decided, you know, I think I'll start scratching a few of these things off. So I went to um, the head of Archie Comics, whom I had known for 30 years, and said, I want to write a real important Archie story, like an Archie graphic novel. He said, great. Uh, That'll be wonderful. What would you like to do? I said, Archie gets married. He said, well, you can't do that. He's been dating Betty and Veronica for 68 years now. (laughs) I said, well, I think it's time you made a choice. And we sat down. And Archie's been great. Those, Those folks, they are so open creatively. And they're the last kind of mom and pop shop still in uh, the major world of comic books. It's a wonderful creative environment. It's like IU. Nobody ever says no. So uh, I married him off to uh, Veronica. That was the initial announcement. And people went crazy. The Today Show had a poll they did over three days, 30,000 people. They wanted Betty, I think it was four to one, uh, with Jughead placing a surprisingly strong third. (laughs) And it was a great experience. I contend as a writer, I'm just reflecting true life. And in true life, Brad chose Angelina over Jennifer. And, you know, that's that's what we have to deal with. Um, But we used I used Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken, and was able to contrast it and show what Archie's life would be like married to Veronica and what it would be like if he had married Betty and how in a butterfly effect, the lives of all their friends and family in Riverdale were drastically changed by the choice that Archie made at this one moment in time. 
all choices have consequences. Yeah, there you go. And as you said earlier, you're writing more. You wrote your autobiography, but you're also writing and drawing comics and graphic novels. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, the latest thing uh, that I've written will be out in June, and it is in the third issue of DC Comics, The Spirit. It is a black and white story, and it's called The Spirit Black and White, and it's illustrated by Justiniano. Justiniano is this generation's Jim Steranko. This is a uh, daring, innovative young artist whose graphic storytelling and design work is quite amazing to watch. He absolutely knocked me out and everyone at DC Comics with the job he did on this black and white story that uh, I strongly recommend to everyone. I co-wrote it with uh, F.J. DeSanto, who had been working with me for many, many, many years. And uh, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, Coming up shortly thereafter, I'm doing my first comic book, writing my first comic book with my son, David, another IU graduate. And we're going to be doing that with DC. And then I'm back to Archie. There's a new slick magazine coming out in August called Life with Archie that will continue the adventures of Archie being married to Veronica in the first half of the magazine, Betty in the second half of the magazine. And those are going to be carried not only in comic book stores and bookstores, but also in places like CVS or Walgreen and uh, Target. And it's really going to be in places you normally don't see comic books. So I'm excited about that. And have a whole bunch of other uh, projects in the works now for both comics and graphic novels in that field. Let's talk, though, about web comics. Anybody right now can set up a website. Anybody can put their work online. And so more people are able to follow comics, whatever they want, uh, you know, whatever speaks to them. Do you suppose this is the beginning of the end of comics in print? Are we going to go more toward the online format? The answer is no and yes. No, it's not the end of comics in print. Yes, we are going more to digitization of comic books. And again, my son David is at the forefront of this, working with a company called Graphically and several other companies. We did a panel that David put together at Chicago Comic-Con a few weeks ago that was actually filmed by 2020. And I know there's a segment coming up. But there is a brave new world happening right this moment. It's a revolution in progress. And the key is the iPad. And between the iPad and the iPhone, what's coming next and the new ways to monetize it for the industry are very, very exciting in many ways. Motion comics are one of the hot concepts right now that are taking place where you could go onto the internet or your phone or an iPad and actually read a comic book and watch the panels move. And the technology there ranges from kind of archaic cavemanish stuff to very cool and innovative movement of panels. There's a wide disparity of quality that's out there right now. But really keep an eye on it because it's going to be exciting. I have seen demonstrations of comic books on an iPad where you can get a music and effects track. I mean, a picture listening to the music of Gladiator while you're reading a Conan comic book. Hear actors voicing the roles. Press a button, have all the word balloons changed to French or Spanish or German. Have all the wording removed. Have the color removed so you could see the original art. Have the ink removed so you could see the original pencils. And then the next application coming is 3D. And to give you an idea how strong this is, right out of the starting gate, uh, the the four most popular apps starting out for iPad were Kindle, uh, eBooks, Marvel, and Archie. Because you have the comic book fans and the genre fans of science fiction, horror, and fantasy that are traditionally the first ones to buy every new technology, every new delivery system. They'll be the first ones online at the movie theater when a movie opens, the first ones online at the DVD store, and when anything is happening through the internet, through any kind of downloads, it's an amazing, amazing thing. So those days are coming. At least for the foreseeable future, there will still be print. And I think um, more in the trade paperback and hardback collections. Eventually, I don't think the pamphlets are going to still be around in the long term. Those uh, small things that come out every Wednesday that have been coming out since 1934. I don't think you can continue to sell $4, $5, $6 pamphlets with one-fourth or one-fifth of a complete story in them. So I think that's going to change, but I think it's going to take quite some time before it does. So an industry that's still ever-evolving, moving with the times. It is, and uh, it's exciting to watch it. And I think specifically the iPad is going to shake it to its core in a very good way. 
One last question before we get you out of here. What do you suppose is the biggest misconception of comic fans? Of comic fans mm-hmm. or of people toward comic books and comic fans? People who read comics, people who collect comic books. What's the biggest misconception? Probably the misconception that irks me the most is that comic books and superheroes are synonymous. And it's only by pushing my fellow fanboys into the world of graphic novels to let them see there are stunning, powerful works by top writers and top artists writing about the Vietnam War. Joe Kubert's A Facts from Sarajevo. Will Eisner's A Contract with God. Art Spiegelman's Mouse. There are so many great things of every genre you could find in, a, in, in the shelves of a Borders or a Barnes & Noble bookstore, you can find it in comics. And even if you look at the movies being based on comics and graphic novels, a lot of times they're not even aware that, that movies like Road to Perdition, A History of Violence, or The 300 were based on comic books or graphic novels. So I think I would love to see them get over that misconception that comic books are all about capes and spandex. They are certainly not, and it's an effective storytelling medium for great stories of every genre for every age group. And the other part of the misconception would be that comic books are not do, – do not have to be geared only toward males, that for the same reason there is a world open to females. And right now the females are – pretty much the major part of the audience for manga, the Japanese comic books, which often feature empowering female protagonists. And I think that the American comic book world needs to take a lesson from that. And it's a good lesson because manga and anime right now, anime being the cartoons based on the Japanese manga books, they are having as big a cultural impact in this country as the Beatles and the British invasion of music did in 1964. Wow. That's a pretty big statement. Go to a Borders or a Barnes & Noble or whatever the chain is you have nearby after school on a typical day, and you will see not only three probably walls filled with manga books, you will see kids scattered all over the floor reading them, and you will see the three-quarters of them are female. And that's a sight to behold. Hmm. Well, unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time. Michael Uslin, thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome, Annie. Thanks for having me here. It was great. This has been Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. The program you just heard was recorded in May of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.